As some of you know, I often like to begin a retreat by exploring why we practice. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular one? So beginning this evening with a few questions, some of which have most likely visited your mind and heart. These questions that in fact humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questions, deep yearnings that have been going on as long as there have been human beings. So this evening's talk is about spiritual urgency. The Pali word for that is samvega. What is life about? What is death, its significance, its meaning? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to really be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world? with all of the challenges within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to spiritual practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So as I mentioned, the talk is about an urgency to awaken with the Pali word being samvega, which most often is translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a a term that's somewhat difficult to render into English because it really includes a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And the classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So, samvega is an urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And it's important to note at this point that It's an energy that's not really fraught with a sense of tension or some degree of frantic energy or any kind of obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind, a quality of heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws 
understanding the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. So let's take a look at this for a few moments. For some of you, some Vega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness or the round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain sense of urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. The death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart toward the urgency to practice and to awaken. And for some of you, this sense of urgency, some vega urgency, may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life. The suffering of life from this particular perspective in general, in the big picture, and maybe more specifically through the various permutations of these experiences in our own life. For some, the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken, comes from what might be a long accustomed or maybe possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or judgment, prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may have also experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us, <clears throat> it might be an emotional state that's somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. I think it's important to recognize and to acknowledge that continuing all along the way of our practice. Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice all along the way of our practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process with 
the various physical conditions of aging being of a primary inspiration at this point. And by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is really the movement of the heart. It's an inner response both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper into my practice. It's this, this particular flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go towards relinquishing the painful contraction however strong or however subtle of clinging to anything when Samvega is present it might sometimes be experienced as an ardency uh, an inspired heart-mind a passion for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure at least some of you have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe, what has brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think, I feel it's quite safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of all of us being here together, right here and now. The wonderful aspects, one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this even if it's just for a very short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice. There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha came face to face with what are classically called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical considering that these four messengers these very common events of life old age sickness death and though not so common in our time and culture the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time Mm -hmm. and culture that Siddhartha grew up in Maybe these messengers, these heavenly messengers, have 
always been and will forever be undeniable aspects. Not maybe, they will forever be and have always been undeniable aspects of life for all living beings. So considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those mornings where he was riding in the chariot and saw and experienced these very common aspects of life and saw and experienced them much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before. To such a degree that in fact he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his existence to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took took in these four very, very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life. Isn't it really the same for us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own lives, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted by ignoring them or maybe by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to the various manifestations of our aging bodies. Or we've reacted by pretending or believing that something else is happening. Until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness, anguish, or fear, or by being tightly contracted with feelings of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. I mean, truly, aren't our closest surroundings full of stirring things? Stirring in the sense of samvega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that render our vision dull and our hearts insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We might certainly have encountered times of very powerful intellectual, emotional, and spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness, its compelling force, as 
maybe some of you have experienced. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which, if we look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which is, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining, deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and constantly changing nature of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we'll begin to sense and see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths, which again, put very simply, is essentially a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third Noble Truth, the truth that in fact, There is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to the predicament. The solution being, simply put again, to not cling. But rather to see things utterly clearly. And simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That in fact, each of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace right now in this very life, in this very retreat. And as any of you may have experienced sometimes quite unexpectedly a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. So for instance with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear anger, grief yearning or clinging and the self-identification that's embodied in each of these habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight or of some maybe manifestation of poverty or maybe the sight of a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with. Or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one. Or one's own illness or bodily discomfort. Or of course, myriad other flavors of experience with any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. 
through seeing our own body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that, of course, is very available for each of us all of the time. So, for instance, a moment or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or mental states or a moment knowing that it's all impersonal it's all anatta it's all not self mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising changing and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and maybe inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the ending of suffering. Or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. We each have many stories many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact often exhibit this knowing and this manifestation of samvega. It's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. (coughs) The stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arahants, one of the enlightened disciples, or the stirring being done by one of the practicing devas. Devas being are beings whose uh, practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, sometimes long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses in the woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, certain monks, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this uh, particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, kept on thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. And then the deva that inhabited this same woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu and desiring his good and desiring to stir up a sense of urgency, approached and addressed this bhikkhu in verse. And this is the discussion between the deva and the bhikkhu. The deva is speaking. 
Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods. Yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove the desire for people. Then you'll be happy and devoid of lust. And in this case, not necessarily meaning just sexual lust, but lust for things and lust for food and lust for various objects and various experiences. (coughs) And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain full enlightenment, arhanship, before the first Buddhist council was to convene, which was scheduled to begin during the next rain rain season. Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that it was his responsibility to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva uh, that lived there, aware that the upcoming uh, Buddhist council could succeed only, actually, if Ananda attended it as an arahant, as a fully enlightened being, came to provoke and to inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. <coughs> then the David that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached and addressed him in verse. And this is the David speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a bow tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, well, I don't know if it was a bow tree actually, but at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. And because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. So the Deva said, meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And I picked this particular dialogue because, of course, none of us are in the same uh, position as Ananda was. We're certainly quite often quite caught up quite seduced in the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect and maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse very beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Certainly not to the neglect of what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately 
into the hullabaloo. So another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling at Fasali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Vasali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? And then that deva that inhabited the woodland, same woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached and addressed her in verse. verse. And this is the deva speaking to the bhikkhuni. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realm. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And the next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking (coughs) thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as potent thoughts of sensuality, as he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited this same woodland, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in this uh, bhikkhu, spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. A very good line, I thought. Think about it. You, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished or having let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, and as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, said the deva, meaning attending to the true nature, their true nature, their true characteristics with a very careful attention, attending to the characteristics that them being impermanent, being not self, and thus being unsatisfactory in nature. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And then when you're suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. <clears throat> and the last uh, verse from the Samyutta Nikaya that I'd like to share with you <clears throat> is about uh, a bhikkhu who after returning from alms round and then eating his meals in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, this bhikkhu would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. (laughs) When the deva, who lived in that same uh, woodland thicket, saw this, she thought, hmm, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead 
meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And the title of this um, a brief sutta is called The Thief of Scent. <laughs> and the Deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds. I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior. Why is this one not spoken to? And the deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that one. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a a mere hair's tip of evil, evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, which when I first time I read this was quite surprised by the deva's response. The deva responds, we don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. <coughs> so even in the time of the Buddha, there was some of that awareness. So it seems amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,600 years ago We're devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha and those of us right here and right now. It seems that, in fact, things haven't changed very much. (laughs) Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are really timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is really as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy. Virya is the Pali word, energy. And a release of courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith and confidence. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are really essential in helping us to break through for what some of you might be some degree of a sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or maybe fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourselves, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of of delusion. What good is there in sleeping for those afflicted by 
disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourselves, sit up, resolutely train your attention trained to attain peace. And he goes on. Going beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish. And he goes on again saying, negligence is a taint and so is the greater negligence following from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency. And the Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're asked to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. And the Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which, from this perspective, we could say is a gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering, it's not out there, not coming from some outside experience, some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in here in the craving and clinging and fear present in our own mind and heart. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience, and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle and offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, particular noble qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a practical solution a solution that's within the power of every human being, a solution that 
many of you or all of you here have begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings from the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, it is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. A story that I've found to be very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency Uh, in me the first time that I read it many years ago, and that every time I read it, it happens again. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week, I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rosebush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk, our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path which had been, when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data, and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured 
unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing is to stock your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of urgency in them, a sense of samvega, to exhort them to just keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version uh, of these words that comes from a Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I have found to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or not moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing the talk this evening, we come right back around to our opening questions. As the poet Mary Oliver in her own way poses them in a poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who's flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. 
I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 